Well, there are many things in our lives that we are born into. I was born with the last name Packer. And there was nothing I had to do to gain that name. It was just because I was born into a certain family that I received that name. Uh, the same thing's true for being an American. I was born in this country. I didn't have to pass a citizenship test. That's just the nature of who I am. It's part of my identity. The same thing is true uh, for being an ACU wildcat. Now, you may say that, you know, that was a choice that I made, but it wasn't a choice that I made. I'm a fourth-generation ACU student. I didn't have a choice where I was going. In fact, I tried to donate blood last week at the Carter Blood Drive, and they wouldn't accept my blood because it came out purple. Um, So some things we're born into. We don't get a choice in the matter. But faith is something very different from that. We are not born into the Christian faith. It's not that we have a family and automatically we become followers of Jesus. To become a follower of Jesus depends on a choice that we make. It's not something that you, you come into by accident. It's something you have to choose to become. And today I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the nature of conversion, about what it means to follow Jesus. When Jesus first comes on the scene in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, he says something significant in chapter 1. It's the first phrase he says in the book of Mark. Let's show that on the screen right now. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, we hear the word repent said a lot, and it's usually by these street preachers with bullhorns, right? And they say, repent, the end is near, but that's not the message Jesus has to bring, a message of doom. This is a message and an announcement about good news. It means that a kingdom is on its way, that God's rule and his reign are now making their way into the world, and it's not perfect yet, but it's beginning to come. And so he says this in Mark chapter 1, and what does he say after that? Not just good news, not just an announcement. He says, here's the announcement, now what are you going to do about it? The response to the good news of Jesus Christ is to repent. And that's not this message of doom. What it is is I'm headed this way. I'm supposed to turn around, convert, to have a conversion of the way I'm living opposite the way that is so natural. Because this life in Jesus Christ is not our nature. It's not the way we are originally slated to go. Sin is so much stronger than the grace of God so often, especially early on in our lives. And every person has to make this decision. Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to repent? Am I going to convert my way of life from what was broken to what will be healed? Or am I going to stay on a path that's going to lead towards sure destruction? We as a church are about this. We want to seek all who need Jesus and together become his fully devoted followers. And that means for each of us, we've got to make a decision to be a part of this story or not. Today, what I want to do is I want to share with you several scenes from the life of Peter. His name is Simon first, actually. And Peter is a name that means rock. But through the story, you find out that he's not so rocky all the time. Or it it, it goes pretty rocky is another way to say that. So the story begins on a lake, the Sea of Galilee. Peter's in a fishing boat. He's, He's doing the family business. This is what his dad did. This is what his brother does. So Simon's on the lake. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks along and says, I want you to follow me, Simon. And Simon's response is, okay. So he leaves his fishing nets, leads his father and his business, and he goes and follows Jesus. And for a long time, he follows him, and he gets to see some incredible things. He sees people healed of diseases. 
He sees lame people walk. He sees multitudes fed, 5,000. He sees all kinds of things happen uh, that we don't get to see, but he got to see with his own eyes. So Simon is doing this. He's seeing what he's seeing. He gets to walk on water with Jesus for a short time like we read about a moment ago. Things seem pretty good. And if you open the Gospel of Mark to chapter 8, I'd encourage you to do that right now. In Mark chapter 8, there's a turning point in this story. Because for eight chapters, Jesus has been healing people. He's been showing his power. Simon's seen all this. But then comes the key question in Simon's life. And it starts in in chapter 8, verse 27. This is the turning point in the gospel. It's the turning point to the cross. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Uh, He asked, who who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, Peter is the one who likes to speak up at any moment he gets a chance, right? Some of you know these people who can't stop talking. And if 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 you don't know a person like that, you might be that person, right? But that's Peter, right? He's got this gift of talking, and it's not always good when he talks. But he speaks words, and in this moment, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? That's an easy question to answer. It's a question about data. It's a question about what others are saying. Takes no uh, really figuring out in his own heart what it means. So he begins to share with others, well, some are, some are saying that you're like Elijah, and some are saying you're like the prophet, one of the prophets. And he says, okay, that's great. That's great what other people are saying. The question is, who do you say that I am? And Simon speaks up, and he says the right words. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. He gives the right answer, which is not always the case with Peter. So everything looks like it's good until we read on a little bit and find out that maybe Peter had a little difference of opinion about what Messiah really meant. Verse 31. He then began to teach them, Jesus did, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must again be, uh, must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Peter was able to say the right phrase, you are the Messiah. That didn't mean that he knew what the Messiah was, or what the, the role would be down the road. And so Jesus begins to tell him, this is what it looks like to be the confession you named me as. This is what the Messiah will do. He'll die on a cross. And Peter rebukes him. Peter has a different idea about all this. And and I'm just guessing this is one of those things that when I get to heaven, I don't want Jesus to say to me, get behind me, Satan, right? Well done, good and faithful servants, what I'm waiting on. But Peter gets, get behind me, Satan. This is not a good response. So he speaks up on the one hand and says the right words. And this is a point we need to know this morning is you can know all the right words to say about who Jesus is, but that doesn't mean you're a fully devoted follower of Jesus. We can know the phrases. We can know exactly how to say the rituals correctly and check the boxes. But if we've not committed our lives to God beyond the words, it really doesn't matter what confession we give on its own. Well, as the story continues on, there's several interesting scenes. There's a story about a, a transfiguration. They're on this mountain and and Moses and Elijah are there, and Jesus is there, and there's all, there's all kinds of cool stuff going on. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And in that moment, Peter speaks up like he always does, because no one else knows what to say, but he'll say it. He says, hey, uh, 
can we build three shelters for you guys? Which is like the first building project that a church does, right? If we don't know what else to do, we build a church. So, so you know, this is what he says. He says, we're going to build houses. And it's like, what, couldn't you come up with something better than that, Peter? Really build structures for these people? That's, but, but this is Peter. He just says the first thing that comes to his mind. He walks on the water with Jesus. And then he falls and he sinks and, and loses his faith in that moment. There's that scene where Jesus, uh, he says to Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive our brother and our sister? And he says seven times, thinking that's a real generous offer. Jesus says, no, how about seven times 70? That would, that would be better. And if you're counting, you're probably getting this whole thing wrong anyway. This is Peter. He's impulsive. He, he says the word, and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. But he's going to be bold and he's going to be courageous even when it doesn't turn out good. The last meal with Jesus' disciples happened around Passover feast. Jesus had the bread and the cup like we shared earlier today. And he, he institutes this, this feast, right, that we're going to get to do in remembrance of him. But around that table, he says, okay, one of you who's dipping your bread in the bowl with me, you're going to deny me. You're going you're to forsake me. And everyone around the table says, surely not I, Lord. I'm just guessing Peter's first to say that, right? And, and, and Jesus says, no, actually, Peter, you're going to do this, and you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And I can just imagine Peter, right, this courageous guy who's like, I will not deny him. I will, I will not deny him. And so he steps out, and the first chance he gets, he doesn't deny him, does he? They go out there, the people come to arrest him, and, and Peter steps up with a sword ready to defend Jesus. I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. And he cuts the ear off of Malchus, this uh, servant who was there. And Jesus says, that's not what this kingdom is about. You remember I'm here to die? Told you this back in chapter 8. But Peter doesn't get it. So all this time he's been speaking and trying to defend Jesus and do all these great things. He's the first one to speak. But the big problem comes in his life when he refuses to speak. There's all these people surrounding the courtyard and he's there. They say, do you know this man, Jesus? And he says, no, I, I don't know the man. Three different times Jesus denies him, or Peter denies Jesus. And I just have to imagine this is a pretty low point for Peter, right? Been following him around for three years and gets to this point, and he can't even claim to know Jesus, who's done all these miraculous things, been walking with him day by day. So we've got conver- story number one, this Mark chapter 8, right confession, and then he's Satan. And then, and then you've got this scene where he denies Jesus three times. So thinking about this whole idea about conversion, I wanted to talk to someone today. And Steve, if you'd come on up. I've asked Steve Roseberry to uh, just share some thoughts on conversion as we think about Peter's life and uh, our, our lives together as well. Steve uh, is an elder of this church, but he was also a full-time uh, minister in churches for th- almost 30 years in Montana and New Mexico and Texas. So it's good to have him as an elder because he knows what staff go through, right? He can appreciate that. Uh, but I, I, pr- I appreciate you being willing to share today. Steve, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, in ministry, we get a front row seat to some pretty amazing things that happen in people's lives. Um, and, and some of them are about conversions that happen in the lives of people. Would you mind sharing one or two stories about conversions that, that have been meaningful to you in that area of ministry? Sure. I think there are a couple of things about conversions that I really have struck me through the years. Uh, the one that came to mind almost first when I heard this question was one that I was very young when I witnessed. 
Uh, in fact, it was pre-ministry completely because I was about four or five years old, and it really set the trajectory for the rest of my life because this was a time in which I sat in a church building much like this, and I watched my mother being baptized. My dad had grown up in Churches of Christ, and he had been away. He was uh, involved in being restored and restructured and re faith again, and then I watched my mother becoming a a child of God. And that's one of those moments that really was significant for me because it really set the direction for my life in the future. Uh, The second one happened much later when I was involved in in ministry in another state. I was at the back of a church building, much like this, at the end of an assembly, and a, a lady walked up to me kind of dragging another lady with her. And uh, this lady, her name was Bev, says, you need to meet my ex-sister-in-law. And uh, I said, okay, and we met. She introduced her. And the next words out of her mouth was, uh, you need to tell her what Acts 2.38 says and have her do it. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe there's some other conversation that needs to be had before we quite go that far down the road. And so I began having conversation with Mary. She would call me and ask questions about sermons and about class. She was there every time we assembled in in the church, and we were having great conversations offline as well. One day she came to me and she said, Steve, I really need to talk to you. Can I come by the office tomorrow and us have a conversation? I'm always sure. So Mary drops by, and she comes in, and, and, and she says, I figured this out. I figured why I, it's been so hard for me to commit myself uh, in faith to Christ and to be baptized. And so I'm waiting to hear what the rest of the story is. And this is what she told me that day. She said, if I do that, what I have in essence done is condemned everything that my parents stood for and everything that it meant and everything I heard from them. Well, those of you that know me know that I talk, I'm a little bit like Peter sometimes, and, uh, but this time I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. Uh, but God is faithful in helping us in those moments. And in a moment... I said, well, maybe, Mary, what you need is to respond to Christ because, you know, I'm pretty sure your parents want you to have a good relationship with Christ and with God. And that was kind of the end of the conversation at that moment. About three weeks later, it's the end of our assembly time, and I have closed the sermon that I've preached that Sunday And I look up, and here comes Mary down the aisle, tears flowing. And as people saw her coming down the aisle, their tears were flowing. Soon my tears were flowing as she made her way to the front to confess her faith in Christ. And that's one of those moments to me that will always, always shape my understanding of conversion experience. That's good. Well, it's easy to talk about other people's conversions and ministry, right? But I want, I want to ask you a question just about your own life. Now, there's a lot of people out there that probably think, you know, ministers, they probably made a decision, but they're, they've got their life together. Now, if you're close to this church, you know that's not the case because you know the staff here, right? Don't say amen, by the way. But, uh, 
but I wanted to ask if you'd be willing to share just in your own life, um, you know, conversion story. I guess one of my questions is, is, is conversion part more an event or has it been more of a journey in your life? And would you share about one of those? I'm absolutely convinced it's a journey. And I wish I could tell you, sit here and say, well, it was always an upward trajectory. Life got just better and better and better, but it looks more like a sawtooth journey or a mountain valley journey for me. Uh, there were challenging times. There were challenging times in ministry. There were times that I absolutely didn't know what to do. There were times that I was frustrated. There were times that I thought, God, how can you do this? There were times when prayers, I perceived at least in the moment, were not answered the way I at least wanted them answered. Uh, And so there were ups and downs in the journey all through that. And there were times that I would grow angry and there were times of frustration and there were times of depression that we went through at our house as I struggled with that and what that meant. Uh, so I have to say that it has been a journey for me. Uh, there, there were some fortunate times for me because I was around faithful brothers who would walk alongside of me and say, we'll work this out. And there were times when I doubted that my wife would say, look, God is good. And so there were people around me that I saw God at work through. And there were times that God would put me in places where I had to engage him. And he just gave me no choice at times to do and to act because he was putting me in those places that forced me to rethink who I I was and who I am, but more importantly, to rethink who I belong to and work on my identity. So there were, there were opportunities to do that as well. I appreciate you sharing some of that. I, I want to connect this back to the story of Peter, and we've got the scene of denial, but John 21 is an interesting story, which you might share some about. But how do you, how do you think John 21 plays into Peter's story in terms of redemption and his further conversion also? John 21 is this story of reclamation in many ways. Peter, after the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and the disciples are there together, and Peter's saying, I'm going back fishing. <laughs> uh, I think I can sympathize that with that. I, there would be days that I would go back fishing, particularly if my expectations had not been met or the struggles that I'd gone through I couldn't figure out how to deal with. And that's what John 21 is about. Because Peter and some of the other disciples go back to the Sea of Galilee. They go back to what they knew, and that was to fish. And that's where Jesus shows up. That's where Jesus shows up. And I think that's what I would say about my own journey. Uh, Whenever there were temptations to go back fishing, Jesus would show up. Mm. He would put situations in my path. He would bring people into my life. He would uh, put a word on my heart. Uh, some of you know that I've been involved with uh, Kevin Vance, who is our church planter up in uh, Regina, Canada, for the last three years. Uh, made trips up there, spent time with him. I've learned to love and appreciate him deeply and have been very convicted that the movement of of uh, churches in North America is going to be significantly connected with uh, this process of 
of uh, planting churches. And a few, about two or three months ago, I woke up in the middle of the night with this real strong sense. And it wasn't that I'm usually awake at night because my wife will vouch for me. I can sleep through uh, anything practically. But I'm awake this night, and there is this strong sense we need 50 church plants in Collin County. I don't know what that looks like at this point. Joy and I have been praying about that, and this is the first time I've really voiced that to anyone. But I'm convinced that that was God poking me in the ribs again. And in a way, it was somewhat like my John 21 experience, reclaiming me and refocusing me on the kingdom of God and the business of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Steve. Would you all give Steve a hand for being willing to share some of that? So John 21 is this important scene in in Peter's life because Judas goes one way when he denies Jesus. I just have to wonder if when... When Jesus goes to find Peter, if that's rumbling in the back of his mind about Judas and how that went, thinking maybe this can turn out different for Peter. So all of a sudden there's this restoration. Three times he asks him, do you love me, to really correct and, 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 and provide penance and forgiveness for the three times he denied him. And it's this incredible scene of transformation because what follows that scene? Do you remember? Jesus finally ascends to be with God. And he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come on you. And this thing called the church is going to get started. And you're going to go through all the world. Do you remember who the guy is in Acts chapter 2 who preaches the message? It's Peter. Out of all the people that God could choose to preach this message, it's the one who denied Jesus that God uses to speak the message of Jesus in this important moment for the church. And if that didn't give you hope or, or, or make you think no one's discounted in sharing this story, this ought to be the story that reminds you of that. Because God can redeem any story. He can use anyone to preach his message of good news. Anyone. doesn't matter where you've been. This is Peter who denied him just recently. And here he is on Acts two, at Acts 2 at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down. Miraculous stuff. 3,000 who were baptized that day because he was willing to speak a word for Jesus when just a few days and weeks before he wasn't even willing to admit he knew him. So the story continues on, though. We think, well, maybe that's his conversion, right? That's scene two is denial and then this restoration in John 21. But the story continues in Acts chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it in a moment. But in Acts 10, Peter is, 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 is there and he's, 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 he sees this vision. He's up on the roof. He, has, he falls into a trance, Scripture says. He has this vision of the sheet coming down from heaven. Imagine this in your own mind. A sheet coming down from heaven with unclean animals. Now, the Jews aren't supposed to eat unclean animals, so it's a sure connection to some of that. Peter's trying to sort through it, and he hears this voice that says, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. He says, no, God, I, I've never done that. I would never do something uh, against your law, like you said. Are you kidding me? I've, I've never touched anything unclean. And God says to him, Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And all of a sudden, that changes our categories a bit from the unclean to the clean. It messes stuff up in our world because all of a sudden uh, he's, he has this message, you're to go downstairs and go with three men and one of those three men is a guy named Cornelius, a Gentile, hasn't been received in yet. And he goes with, with Cornelius and he shares this good news with Cornelius. His family's baptized, the Holy Spirit is connected with this event 
And all of a sudden, the categories before of Gentiles being on the outside, they get, they get completely transformed in this moment. But then Peter's got to go back and tell the rest of the people who didn't have that vision what God's up to now. And so in, in, in Acts chapter 11, this is what we read. Acts 11, beginning in verse 17. It says there, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So all these people, just on the word of Peter and on his testimony, say, Well, if God's doing this, then we're behind you. Even though Scripture says this, God is opening a new door and opening all kinds of new categories. And and this is not just a conversion of Peter. This is a conversion for the church. So in Acts chapter 15, it's the Jerusalem conference, and, and they're trying to decide, what do we do with these Gentiles who seem to be receiving the Holy Spirit? Do we include them in? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? This is what Peter proclaims in Acts 15, beginning in verse, uh, verse 7, I believe. Peter says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now think about Peter who's sharing this message. He's not just saying a message from God. Peter has received this in his own life, hasn't he? In John 21, he received the grace of God in a new way. And now he's able to proclaim that to people who are on the outside, that it is by the grace of God that you are being saved. And because of his testimony and the others who are present, we are grafted into this story as Gentiles. So we see conversions all through Peter's life, don't we? Was it in, back to the question we started with. Where was Peter converted? Was it in Mark chapter 8 when he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah? Or maybe it was John 21, wasn't it? John 21 where, where he's denied Jesus and he's received grace for himself. Maybe that's Peter's conversion. But then there's this scene in Acts chapter 10 and following where all of a sudden the racist tendencies of his own heart, of who's in and who's out, those have to be converted in him as well. That now God's opening barriers that were there that shouldn't have been there from the start. So we think that Peter's through his transition. I'm wondering which of those scenes you think might be his conversion moment. But then we come to a story in Galatians chapter 2 that you would think wouldn't happen. Peter's converted, right? He's, he's past all this. This is what Paul writes to the church at Galatia about Peter. Galatians 2 Beginning in verse 11. Peter's referred to as Cephas in this passage. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
I don't know if you've noticed this before. This is post-Jerusalem conference. This is post a vision where God says there are new people included in this body. And Paul has to write to Galatia and say, I had to confront Peter. Because even though he had this vision and received God's grace and proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, he still is not eating with the, the Gentiles who are present because of the pressure of those who didn't want that. So my question is, was Peter ever converted? Or maybe conversion isn't just an event. Maybe it's a process, like Steve was talking about earlier. Because that's how it's happened in my own life. Is, you know, there are times where I've confessed correctly that Jesus is Lord, but I hadn't owned in my heart that I'm saved by the grace of God. Now I've got to do rituals. But then I was converted to see that grace is a part of this story. And there's nothing I can do to be outside of his love if I'm continually pursuing him, confessing my sin, stepping back into relationship with him when I'm parted. But then there are other parts that God has to convert to say, the people you thought were insiders, it's bigger than that. Let me end by saying this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, after Acts 2 happens and 3,000 are baptized, he says, he says right here, he says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want you to notice that language of being saved. It, it shows up again in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I'm not trying to say that we can't be sure of our salvation, okay? There, there's a sense in which we were saved at the cross for those of us who accept that gift. So this is not a question of if we're saved eternally or not. There's also a future hope. We will be saved. But the message of these two passages is we are being saved. It is a process. God continues to save us, not just salvation eternally, but salvation is bigger than just where we end up one day. Salvation is what God wants to do through us all the time. So we're going to give you an opportunity to think about that in your own life. What might be the next conversion for you? Maybe today it's making the initial decision. I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to choose to go into the waters of baptism, and I'm going to claim him as my Lord. Or maybe it's you want to come forward and just tell me that you want to start that conversation. I would love to have that conversation with you. Or maybe you've already made that decision, and your salvation is secure. You just need the next step in your salvation. You're being saved, and God wants to convert more layers of your life. And if that's the case... We hope you'll come forward too. This is going to be a garden of prayer time. In fact, if the prayer leaders that would get up would, who, who agreed to kind of help us this morning, elders, leaders, prayer uh, leaders, if you would get up and go around the outside, we're going to have a few songs that we're going to sing. And this will be a time of invitation for you. Uh, we, I don't want to make this like the old invitation where you have to come down if it's only something big, right? I mean, this is a time where we can pray with one another. This is not just going to leaders. You can pray as family units. You can pray and find someone who needs prayer around you. Or maybe you need to come and celebrate something. It doesn't have to be something hard in your life, but if you'd like to be baptized this morning, we'd love to receive you and do that this morning. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the next step in your journey. You need help through some sin or struggle that's going on in your life. Whatever your struggle or concern might be, God is in the process of saving us from whatever it might be that's keeping us from relationship with Him. Let's stand right now as we sing together.